0: This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones.
1: I
2: did try an actress once, but it was so minimal that it didn't really, wasn't really jewellery. So it didn't really compliment the person. But it's jewellery if you say it's jewellery.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's, if it's minimal, it's not jewellery. I think no, it's... what I
2: meant is it didn't work. So I didn't feel it. Who said it didn't work? Could you show it to me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone. For people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales meeting all sorts of people delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. There's a strong synergy between architecture, fashion and jewellery. Many fashion designers studied architecture before switching to fashion. Tom Ford, Tierra Mugler... Virgil Abloh, Pierre Cardin, Ralph Simmons, And it's a similar story in jewellery. Architects have often extended their designs from buildings to humans. Both disciplines are concerned with space, light, geometry, texture, structure, volume and material. All of which has historically tempted many architects to experiment in the jewellery sphere. The visionary architect Zaha Hadid designed twisted cuffs for George Jensen... The Pritzker architecture prize winner Frank Geary for Tiffany was another. Is it just a question of proportion? Are jewels really small scale building models? I can tell you, I actually tidied up my office because I've invited a couple of designers along this morning. So I'm very thrilled and delighted to have John Pawson, the British architect who's widely considered the father of minimalist architecture here. His architectural projects around the world include flagship stores for designers such as Jill Sander, Calvin Klein, hotels, ballet sets, yacht interiors, a monastery in Bohemia, Wooden Chapel in Germany, Bastion Gallery in Berlin and London's Design Museum. I could go on, but we might be here all day. Plus, he's a photographer with half a million followers who look at his work each day. John, thank you very much for coming and joining me.
2: Thank you. Beautiful morning.
0: It's a beautiful morning. And we are joined by Lebanese architect and designer Dina Kamal, who studied and worked in Washington, moved to Beirut, and is now based in London, where her design practice includes precious objects, including jewellery works. And she sort of edits her ideas in strong architectural forms to harness their power, punctuated by precious stones. Thank you for joining us this morning, Dina.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: First of all, I wanted to unpack that word minimalism. Oh dear. And what it means. <laughs> and I think you have a problem with that word, don't you,
2: John? I think a lot, a lot, a, a, quite a few architects have a problem with it because it's, it means so many things to so many different people. I found it easier just to go along with with the description because if you start arguing, you get into all sorts of trouble. But I guess if it means clarity and clear vision or and to be able to appreciate space because it's unadorned, then then I'll go with minimal.
0: But what do you think it means?
2: I think it means all those things. It can I mean it's it's covers so many different areas and so many different things. I mean it obviously it became known because of the art movement in the sixties. And of course there isn't one artist from that period who agrees with the term either.
0: So have we just got lazy? Is it a term that we we encompass sort of rigorous simplicity um, and then we just sort of use it like that.
2: I think it's very attractive to people. It seems to have have caught on. It's one of those words that is so much used and probably so much misunderstood, I think. I mean, Judd called his work essential.
0: Essential as opposed to putting in anything unessential. Yeah. So the bare bones.
2: Yeah, and, uh, and, you know, the point, you know, uh, an object has when you can't add or subtract anything. Mm. Without changing it for the worse.
0: and how how do you decide that?
2: Ah, <laughs> how do you decide what you do? I don't know. Maybe that sorts sorts the men from the boys. Or
0: <laughs> so it's just a case of your eye and how you see it, your vision.
2: Yes, I think it's much much misunderstood because it's not about it's not a hair shirt mentality. It's not about you know living with nothing. It's just not living with things you don't need.
0: Like don't need curtains, them. for
2: instance. Ah, well, Catherine, my wife, would argue that <laughs> curtains are essential.
1: It's, I find that it's not just the object, like it's not curtains, or but it's a sensibility, like when something is in balance. And, exactly. And, and you know, it's just, it has a peaceful feeling, but it's but still very intense and it just it takes so much time to get to that point and it's so much more complex but people i think misuse the word because for them it's about removing the curtains or the extra furniture and that's yeah. what minimalism maybe
2: yeah it's not enough just to paint it white
1: yeah exactly yeah. so
0: it's um it's something determined from the beginning
2: yes Hmm. I mean, it's not. It, it isn't for everybody. I mean, pe- you know, obviously most humans are, you know, both collectors and, the, and and they obviously are, you know, people that move around. So there's sort of two things: one, you know, one that, that that have stuff and ones that don't, but in the same person as well.
0: So what do you do with your stuff?
2: I don't have any stuff. You have nothing. I. I well, I'm very li- I very little. You have books. Too many books. Yeah. And I'd, when I had my studio uh, office for the at the beginning. I didn't have any books at all because I hate that idea of looking at a book for inspiration. And mm, it's not—it's mm. not what you do.
1: True inspiration, I totally agree. It doesn't come from looking at. It's—it's it's when you get fascinated by something insignificant almost, yeah, and exactly. it just creates something in your mind, and you recreate that feeling.
2: And you don't know where it's coming from. I mean, when it, where yeah. it is going to come from?
1: Yeah, very true.
2: You can't just sit there waiting and leaving through.
0: But Dina, I remember when we first met, when you came into Vogue, and mm. I was struck by the simplicity of your pinky rings. Yeah. Because I think you were the first person, really, who who did this sort of taking the essence of something like a signet ring and just deleting everything. I mean, there, it wasn't a signet ringer that you'd ever seen before.
1: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's how I came into jewellery. I was actually studying identity and context. My inspiration is more reading or understanding things that inspire us, move us, shift us, create something. I started for some reason looking at the history of, of wearing what it meant, the, the signet ring from even the Assyrians to pharaohs, I found out, started before the nobleman, But it's about this power that shifts something in us and with this little object that I was curious about and it just kind of led from there. But what I felt was I wanted something in it of of that belonging when you wear this little piece that can shift something in you. How do you strip that? Take that idea of, oh, it's about being nobility or royalty, but, but just strip it and use it as a tool that becomes which is really the essence of all these notions, even in tribal jewellery. And I did this small series, which is the idea of the signet ring is, is to show what you're linked for, what you're linked to. Um, and I wanted to look at design in a way that is closer to men's jewellery, which is simpler. But at the same time, look at reproportionate, so it works for both, Mm. based on the body, which is the context. So this finger versus this finger. John,
0: your aesthetic famously was influenced by a trip to Japan in your mid-twenties, where you lived in Tokyo. And you studied, or did you study with the Japanese architect, Shiro Kuramata? Or were you just influenced by him?
2: I, I, when I got to Tokyo, uh, when I was 24, and I'd seen Domus magazine when I was living in, up in the north. So I'd seen his work in Domus in the 60s. And so when I got to Tokyo, I thought, being a bit naive, I just I just rang him up and said, Oh, I'm, I'm here. This is a 24-year-old <laughs> who could have been a schoolboy.
1: That's
2: uh, amazing. And um, so I, he, I don't know, he didn't know who I was, so he thought he better play safe. And so we had this coffee. And then after that, I I had several um, meetings where I sort of hung around in his office and made a nuisance to myself. And then about three or four years later, he said, well, I think it's about time you went to school yourself. Mm. So um, by the time I was 30, I went to the Architectural Association. But you just knew what you wanted to do. Uh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and I'd so much sort of built up that I wanted to, to express.
0: What did you want to express?
2: I suppose something that I've Felt, I mean, that the, the Kuramata had been able to do, and he was the first person for me since Mies van der Rohe to actually express it physically. And it was just, just this um, dealing with space. Mm. And I don't think anyone else was doing it like he was. And when I started, I mean, everybody thought I was mad. I mean, my sister sent me a blank, white piece of paper saying, welcome to the minimalist club.
0: Because it, at that time, everyone was sort of in maximalist mode, yes. and uh, interiors had to be cosy and warm and English.
2: Certainly in England, yes. I mean, the, the Dutch were a bit more sensitive to visual things. I mean, we're, we're a culture of literature, aren't we, really? Uh, visual arts aren't big, or weren't big. Now, of course, it's, it's fantastic.
0: But I read that you were struck by concepts such as wabi, is it wabi, which is voluntary poverty, where humble materials are used with sort of honesty and simplicity.
2: Well, that is, yeah, I mean, that is, among other things, the Japanese from the 17th century or 16th century, you know, which is, again, wabby or savvy. It's, yeah, you know, it's something that, that not everyone necessarily gets or understands. But it's now, of course, you know, mm. people have written books about it and it's banded around again.
0: So left to your own devices, would you
2: have nothing in your space? Oh, not at all. No, no. I mean, no, It, it just not ha- have what you need, but, but uh, only what's essential. But th- the essential could be, you know, a piece of art or a beautiful chair and, and depending where you put it and so on. But it's, you can negate space with more stuff than you need. But you know, you have to you know, it's life's about living and it's you know, there are more things than keeping a room uncluttered.
0: So Dina, you studied and practiced in Washington mm-hmm. and so what led you into jewellery design?
1: I think I didn't intentionally do it. It's just I'm always curious to try and understand it's the same thing that led me to architecture is when I feel something intensely, when I'm in a space or a narrow, you know, between two walls, how they impact you, you know, proportion these ideas. And then I start kind of digging and trying to understand that and why we feel this way. And I was just, because I was looking at issues of identity, I guess, at the time, I just kind of, it happened that I went into the signet ring. But it's it's the same concepts. So for me, there it's not different the beginning of it it's and it's a detail also because if you think of architecture you have to think on a big scale and then you have to zoom into the detail because it's it's a balance between all those so uh,
2: i do find though i mean i don't know it might be just a personal thing but jewelry is the one area that I, I mean i did try a necklace once but it was so minimal that it didn't really wasn't really jewelry so it didn't really compliment the person but it's jewelry if you say it's jewelry
1: yeah i don't think it's if it's minimal it's not jewelry i think what i
2: meant is it didn't work so i didn't feel it who said it didn't work did you show it to me (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah
2: didn't work on on her or or him were you commissioned i think it was discussed it wasn't necessarily direct commission it was just and you kind of went through I thought I'll oh, I'll try this, yeah. as I've been asked. It's a bit like clothes. I did a raincoat for Burberry, which is
1: I love that. forgotten.
2: <laughs> <laughs> In the archives. But, but I said I I just feel quite strongly that I don't know. I mean I've I've done small objects.
0: You've just done a chair, a tactile chair.
2: I've done a chair, which is of course the, the absolute ultimate test. Mm-hmm. I mean I thought I couldn't do it. I'm really pleased.
0: I read somewhere that you said it's all architecture. Designing anything is architecture.
2: I think I meant right down to the, you know, coffee cup or the glass or... When you put something on people...
1: But it's the same. It's the process and the context changes. I think. Yes, no,
2: I mean I'd love to I'd love to get to that stage.
1: <laughs> I'd, love, so I'd love to be able to do oh God, I really it, don't think I'm sure like, you're already way beyond that stage. It's just maybe <laughs> Because you know. start with an idea and yeah. a drawing, it's
0: the same, isn't it? Is it not just a question of proportion? Is it something different then? It's not just taking a model. And downscaling it.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think it's just. Pro- I proportion is very important, but it's not. Maybe also because I find when I went into jewelers, I still don't consider myself a jeweler. <laughs> but uh, what
0: do you consider yourself then? What do you call yourself?
1: An architect that designs jewelry, <laughs> and I find that the process and thinking is very different you know jewelers really focus either on the stone the diamond or on representing something they've seen like nature leaf or a flower or and then architects in general who design jewelry don't think that it's worn on the body so they make these geometric very big geometric that are not like however if you look at tribal jewelry they wear massive pieces yet it feels like as if it's their arm, it's part of their body, like an extension of the body. So, and I think it's it's very similar to architecture. It's just, um, it's usually approached as an accessory. And and then in that sense, I think it kind of, it loses, it, it becomes more about the proportion only, which is very important, of course. But I, I think it's very similar. Like you said, that you designed a raincoat so you can design a hat.
2: I mean, I don't know what it says about me, but I never notice anyone's jewelry. Mm. And you know, and they can have you know huge diamonds weighing the ears down. And it's like the clothes. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you what some would have been wearing. Whereas it, Catherine, you know, would say, you know, mm. wasn't that a beautiful dress? Or did you see her?
0: You don't see it.
2: I don't see. I, I see. I just see the person and, and the face. The, I, and eyes. I love that. So that's
0: superfluous. That's superfluous, and you 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 um, you remove it from your sightline because it's superfluous. Yeah, I
2: think. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I didn't, I haven't thought about it. You know, I haven't voiced then, it until today, but I don't.
1: But then, when you go into a beautiful space, it's not that you you you're just conscious of the space and the feeling. Yes, exactly.
2: It's yes. an atmosphere. That,
1: yeah. And it should be the same, you know. So maybe. You are not conscious of the piece, but something struck you or stayed, you know, and that's even better because the less conscious I think, and your work says that to me, so it's more about what I feel than it's looking at saying, oh, this is good design. So
0: it's it's going for an emotional response.
1: I always go that way, or it has to be intellectual or emotional or something, or physical sometimes. So I'm interested in what you both think about
0: light, because the minute John arrived, he commented on the light Mm. this morning. And I think, as you said, your space that you create seems to be about light and how it hits and where it comes from. And I think, Dina, in your jewellery, it's often translucent stones like windows pulling you into the piece. So I wonder what you both think of the importance of light in in architecture and jewellery. Well, it's there's, there's no
2: architecture without natural light. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Louis Kahn said, among others, I'm sure. And it's the most important ingredient. I mean, it's, you know, after all the other things like material or mm. scale or proportion.
1: Yeah, I there's nothing, I think, without light. Even in darkness, pitch black darkness, and then light somehow appears and you start seeing a silhouette and it's so stunning sometimes and beautiful, just and it makes you see things differently. So uh, when we finish a piece and the way we photograph, for me, is sometimes I want it in shadow or in light or, you know, because it speaks, it shows another layer that maybe I see in the piece and people, if you do the traditional jewelry photography, you can never understand or feel that about the light. And I think it's incredible to see that but that's how also an idea starts because the same thing you see every day the light hits it differently and then what your vision changes based on that but your chapel for example the the light in that is everything I mean other than that it's very raw the wood but then Mm. how light how when you're inside it's a different feeling i've never been, but from what i've seen I've been to the Berlin Museum, which right. is the light there is phenomenal, and the water when you look is pitch black but it's reflective, yeah. and then the pieces, how they're lit, you know all of that with the space it's really it's intense
2: yeah, this is a bunker in the World War two bunker in Berlin
1: mm-hmm.
2: where you uh, it's a permanent a permanent collection of Desiree Fuelles, and he insists that before you tour the, the museum and see his pieces, which are very low lit, you, you start in a, a, a completely dark room for two minutes, which unnerves some people.
0: And do you choose gemstones for the light particularly and do you have specific cuts to maximise that light?
1: I think I I choose in different ways. Sometimes we did this transparent series and I just wanted like glass ideally and I wanted to just see through because people always have the diamond and, you know, it's about how you put that. And I wanted you to have the glass in place of the diamond and just look through into the bridge that's holding it or the structure that we build or all of that. But I think it's also when I look at diamonds because people love diamonds for me, it's like when I you look at pearl or or gold or it, it's you want to connect with it somehow and then respond to that and sometimes it's about the transparency or the cut. I think a lot of the times for me is because the diamond is so expensive and it's supposed to be so glorious. I want to make it humble and very you know still and I think this is the future of luxury is how a humble diamond. It humble yeah, not just diamond humble everything, but that's so refined and so well. You know that's the Japanese. They take yeah. something like they took tea from China and then they transformed it into this phenomenal experience. That it's the best tea, the best room, but but it's so simple. How do you do that with with the transparency? I think in diamonds, it sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it's looking at the project or. It, the commission that I'm doing, mm. you know, different aspects. What is your favourite material to work with?
2: Um, well, I usually use natural materials and wood or stone, or obviously you have to use glass and steel. But, um, you know, but I've done quite a bit of work with Ian Schrager, who's the hotelier in, in, uh, in New York. And his question to me is always wood or stone, mm. stone or wood. And it and, and <coughs> doesn't matter what you say if you say, Ian, it should be stone on the floor. He goes, well, what about wood? (laughs) And then you say, okay, wood. And he said, well, what about stone? (laughs) So stone and wood, wood and stone. And this is this mantra, and he's quite serious. You know, I think he thinks if he keeps on somewhere along the line, that the the truth will come out and it'll be stone. Or wood. Or wood (laughs) or stone. (laughs) I mean, when I first started, there was only straight grained Japanese. So that was what I was going to use on the floor. And white marble, and then for as an accent piece, I I use some black granite, and then that's about it. And now, of course, you know, with different jobs and different people, you know, some people, some people like grey stone, and some people like sand coloured stone.
0: But some of your work, Dina, is quite redolent of Richard Serra's monumental modern steel sculptures. And I wonder what you both thought. Do you do you see jewellery as small sculptures? Because that's how jewellery is described a lot now
1: it can be. The thing about a sculpture is sort of it removes context most of the time, but not necessity like in Richard Serra or Pomodoro or any of the great sculpt. So I think it needs to take the context in place and then everything is a sculpture or art or beauty, but now there's a trend that everybody's an artist and everything is art. And <laughs> but I, you know, there's a practicality to being an architect and I think that's the power I find for me is that you have to look at technical aspects, context and and not just a beautiful form or something that's outside of that. So for me, yes, I look at sculptors or the piece if I, I sit, it, it needs to, how it sits, how you can look at it outside and that's why sometimes when we shoot it, we shoot as if we're inside of it or around it and then it's no longer like a body piece but it's something else. Can be. Do you think it's
2: yeah. sculpture, John? I, I, I think it's, I think it's everything. Um, I mean, it's certainly art. I mean, it's certainly sculpture. You know, um, sadly he died, but we did quite a lot of work over the years for um, Sheikh Sar, mm. um from Qatar. And he, he sent me um, on his list his, his Christmas card, which was, I thought was a, a head of a pharaoh. So I said to him, "Oh, beautiful! That's not a." Pharaoh. <laughs> That's a Khmer 6th century sculpture, and it's, by the way, it's, it's small. I thought it was huge. And, uh, and we were in his office in uh, South Audley Street, and he, and he said, and I, he said, that's not important. And he said, you know, this is, this is, and he had a glass desk to the side. And I went over, and, and not thinking, and I picked this thing up, and he, he said, you yeah, know, that is, um, that is special. And I said, Well what is it? And he said, Qatar. And I said, Oh, Qatar. And he said, Yes, Howard Qatar. Howard Qatar. Howard
0: Carter. It came yeah. from Tutankhamun's Institute. Mm.
2: Yes. He'd got he bought Howard Carter's collection. Wow. And it was just on the table and it still had um you know old fashioned white tags. Oh my god. And they gosh. were there and it was just all on the desk and I picked up the the um, what's that insect but anyway? The, oh, the like, scarab, yeah, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know, with the wings which fold back, and then there was a reservoir for the oh, yeah. Makeup. And I said, Oh, do the, you know the girls must have been very fun? He said, No, 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 me- only met- men wore makeup. Yeah. So I was holding the that's uh,
0: amazing. How many yeah. pieces?
2: Um, on the on the desk, I mean, I was too nervous, there were, must have been a dozen, but the only thing that I have a strong memory of and actually physically picked up was the. Yeah, of course, put it down when he said
0: Yes. Because no Howard Carter smuggled. allegedly did smuggle quite a lot out that he wasn't mm. meant to. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well I think all that stuff, yeah, I mean any of those.
0: And beautiful. But and Cartier of course took quite a lot of artifacts that they could find right. through antique dealers and right. made them into Art Deco jewels and right. used the old faience pieces yeah. from Egypt.
2: It did, did you know him? Because he in in the same room, he had these you know filing yeah, old-fashioned yeah, wardrobe, draw- and, and it, yeah, it was just full of necklaces. But they were you know six thousand years old, some of them. God. So I mean, I think you know jewelry ha- survives buildings.
0: It does, doesn't it?
2: And then it's older. Than, mm. I mean, the oldest piece of jewelry must be older than the existing any yes. existing building. Well, there is a bead in the British Museum,
0: which is supposed to be about 100,000 years old. Mm. And they think it's a bead because it does show that it's been drilled right. and it could only have been drilled to mean it was being used for something. Right. So it's obviously not the full necklace, but it is is—it is a shell bead that has been used mm. as jewellery. So I guess it does survive, doesn't it? But then we've still got the pyramids. Yeah, but they're quite young yeah, I
2: mean, compared to the, some of the... the yeah. Um, I mean, I guess. Yes.
0: Mm. But that's something you like about architecture, is its permanence. Yes. But it's definitely sculpture to you then, Dina?
1: I don't think of it as sculpture. You don't? No. I I mean, I just think, you know, you have to design for this. This is the idea, or if you have a context, or you're starting a context, and then... And designing for the neck, what does it mean here, how does it sit, and how to make it beautiful is a consideration like in a sculpture. But then technically, what does it do, you know, how it sits, the mechanism, mm-hmm. how it feels. I mean, some architects work want their buildings more like sculptures, but I think good architecture has to combine beauty and like some pragmatic Aspects. They say an architect is a functional artist.
2: Definitely, (laughs) and and a functioning one. (laughs) Not every day.
1: So, but you you know, in the old times, and I think it they were more. And now I always call like the way I work tools of empowerment because in the old days, if you look at ancient jewelry and pharaohs Mm. or other civilizations, and then uh, armor and things like that, these are jewelry. And they are not looked at, you know, like we look at jewellery now. It's more functional. And in the 20s, like the gold filter, you know, these kind of notions of a precious. That's why I wanted to call it at the beginning, precious objects, because to me, jewellery has a. Specific understanding?
0: Well, I think originally it was really all with a talismanic purpose. Yeah. It was really a sort of spiritual purpose because mm. people were frightened of the world or they didn't know or they had something just as a sort of feeling of protection. So there's that sort of spiritual idea behind it, which could be from some of your buildings. They're very serene, there's a sort of spiritual essence there, calm. Definitely. Yes, yeah. I've always
2: sort of been slightly shy of describing the secular buildings as as spiritual i mean obviously the churches that's what you're searching for is some uh, spiritual atmosphere but even
1: in your dwelling no in your home
2: yes but you know when you're designing a church it's a very specific Mm. purpose and you're you're trying to help those people get closer to god and making it the whole thing easier and there's no there's no guarantees when you finish that it will be spiritual the place but you you try and you've only got the same you know materials and form and light
1: like in the chapel yeah which is very powerful
2: yeah but i mean you you've only got those things to, to make it's the same thing you same uh, vocabulary you've got for a house as a, as a church but you've got to make it spiritual
0: but use it mm. differently
2: yeah but it's interesting when the monks first came to me they they wrote and they said oh we saw the calvin klein store can you do us a church?
0: That's <laughs> that's such a <laughs> weird <laughs> commission, isn't yeah, it? To be well, inspired by yeah. Calvin Klein, like
2: <laughs> well, the monks, seven yeah, monks. <laughs> yeah, I thought they'd gone there, but you know, because English is is is, is not very um, accurate as a language, so, so they, they they'd actually seen the photograph,
0: mm.
2: and uh, but what they'd seen was, was proportion and scale and right. light. And actually they'd seen two tables, which of course the first altar was a kitchen table. So mm. it's, not, it's not too much of a stretch.
0: But when you described earlier that you you tried to make a piece or you talked about it with somebody and you thought it, was, it didn't work and it was too simple. I mean, Anthony Gormley years ago made a necklace yeah. and it was literally just steel blocks. Couldn't have been yeah. more simple. Yeah. And he did say... It'll be more beautiful when it rusts, and I thought, well, actually, it's not going to work with a white shirt but, <laughs> but it couldn't have been more simple and it was very beautiful so what would what would you make if you if you made a piece um, no I'm not going to hold you to it, so it's okay no, I have no idea that
2: it wouldn't be uh it, it it wouldn't be so rigid I don't think mm. I think it would be something
1: what's the piece you made?
2: It was, uh, I, I can't really remember because it was so redolent of. Um, uh, there's an, an Italian designer, actually a bit like Coromata called A.G. Franzoni. And um, he did the most beautiful. He was from from Milan. And he did a lot of graphic work, posters and things as well, as well as architecture. But he did a, some jewellery, which was very.
1: I, I know he is.
2: I think he. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so it was sort of similar 70s. to that, just sort of a shape in gold thin lines of gold on sort the of chest. more
0: fluid feeling to it
2: no this was very geometric okay. i think i would do something much more fluid uh, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: maybe i better get on with it and do some I jewelry
0: i did try and commission you do you remember years ago i did an exhibition at masterpiece london right. oh yes yes and i got carl lagerfeld to make something and i mean it was an amazing exhibition but I think you were too busy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to think of another. That was his way out. He was too busy. <laughs> um, but I'll have to do another explanation. No, I should,
2: because it's, mm. cha- it's a challenge, Yeah, you know. It's a challenge left, definitely.
0: And I think you said even something as modest as a fork can become a vehicle for much broader ideas about how we live and what
2: we value. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's just things that come, that you come into contact with. You know, on a daily basis. I think that's, that's so important. I had this thing where if if something's already designed that's that you can't really beat, then you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But I've changed my mind.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> and you've tackled a fork. Tackled <laughs> a
2: fork and a chair, which is even more.
0: What do you think the ideas of, of jewellery provoke, do you think, when we see someone wearing jewellery? And what are the wider ideas? Do you think it becomes a vehicle for something else?
1: I think mostly, I mean jewelry is identified either with wealth or a stature and then it's things that are intimate like uh, you know like a talisman like you said or something from your grandparents or your parents or disconnection or for your wedding or but I like to think of I look at jewelry uh, I look more at ceremonial jewelry for tribes or for war even though I'm anti-war but things that help us as tools like I feel now more and more we need things attached to us that give us this internal feeling or edge or power that we need and I think jewelry can do that easily you put something it shifts something in you it puts you in a state of mind and I love these notions and to relate them to jewelry more and more and I think I mean, to me, that's the future of jewelry more than just ornament. I mean, ornament is beautiful and and doing that for wealth or love or all of that. But how you use them as daily tools or as, I don't want to say weapons, but as like your armor Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, what you need today or always but clothes and jewelry can be the same thing as architecture part of your personality i think that's what it needs to strip to the minimum back to what it needs to be and then it's yeah, more but the
2: but the work that i do the for for i mean obviously you always have a client and then the the architecture is a product of the relationship with the client but they they you're designing spaces to occupy they're not they're not trophies, or they are, they are. Well, they m- they might be. They will invite not... people in and
0: say, "Look at John Paulson designing this."
2: Well, thing. they shouldn't.
0: And,
1: <laughs>
0: I'll and put it that in the is contract. you. They are making a statement
1: about who they are and what they like by Even their Even a secular space is a statement somehow. I mean, or, well, it's it not a...
2: supposed to be supposed to be something where you 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 come as a as a guest or the, and you feel good. Yeah, And you don't understand necessarily why you feel good, but you, you definitely feel different and you have an explanation of air and, and you go, ooh, this, this feels nice. Uh, well, we hope.
0: But they are expressing who they are through your expression of what you've created. And in a way, jewellery is that when they leave the home, when right. they leave that space, right. they are saying, this is who I am right. because I'm wearing these certain pieces and it, it's my identity. And I do believe more now when you talk about ancient jewellery, Dina, and how it was sort of an object of power and empowerment. And, and I think actually now people have less, less things they can rely on in life, that maybe they use jewellery, jewellery's got more power again because people need it to feel comforted or secure or they move around a lot, they can take their jewellery with them. I don't know, I think maybe it's got th- that importance again.
1: I think in both ways, maybe. I mean, it's back in fashion, so people want to spend on jewellery because it's a good investment and all that. Even men jewellery, which wasn't before and now is really much stronger. But I think also because we're looking for that one piece that is part of us and that you want, you feel is part of your identity or similar, it gives you a feeling like when you're in a space.
0: I remember when um, I went to um, Santa Monica to interview Frank Geary, when he had started this sort of collaboration for Tiffany years ago. And um, so I went out and I went to his studio and had 150 architects working there. Unbelievable, with different sort of models behind, some different sizes, some tiny, some huge. I asked him obviously why, why he was doing this and um, he said it was very attractive for him at that point in his life as he was getting older that instead of working on sort of 10-year projects, he could have a quicker realisation in making smaller things like jewellery. Do you feel that when you're working on a chair or something else that it's actually quite nice on smaller pieces that you can see the end result quicker?
2: well it's very it's very nice to be able to work on something of a small scale because you you can have it there in your hands and you can you can see the finished thing at a certain point and you can say okay whereas with the building when it's finished it's not exactly how it was supposed to be you know what i mean it's, it in in the construction and the period it changes and you haven't you haven't total control i mean you can't sort of build it and then say okay build that because it's sort of, it's built Whereas with a you know a small object you can
0: you have more control yeah
2: and but the uh, the irony is that the you know we we did a, some cookpots and they are Belgian and they are the best cookpot maker in the world I mean the best stainless steel and, and they're sixteen layers for the bottom and all the rest of it I mean they took nine years mm. really so the small things have taken me as long as the longest project Well wow. as an architect you get used to Ten years is the outside, but it's you have at least designed it in the first year, so you know what it is. It's just getting it built. Refined it. Refined well, and, and the, the, all the complexities mm-hmm. of getting something built. The hotel in Jaffa in Israel, we started in 2005 and finished in 2018. Mm. Because of all the political and religious problems and... And it was on, the, mm-hmm. on, a, on a sensitive side.
0: Sorry. What's the longest project you've done, Dina?
1: A necklace I was doing for a client. Um, it took almost a year from when we started the idea and it took a long time to finish mm-hmm. because it, it, it had, like, very custom mechanism and hinges and it it's all done by hand. And
2: You have to have your arms around his neck. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that took a long time. But usually for custom work, the minimum is three months, more like six months for a project to be completed from when I start with the idea. So it's much quicker than architecture. Mm-hmm. But um, and
0: you want to build a new kind of retail space now, don't you?
1: Yeah, I struggled when I started to to go commercial, which I still am figuring out how how to grow. No, don't go commercial. <laughs> no, I, I don't want to go commercial, but I I want to grow and and in a way, or be more accessible and at the same time not lose integrity of the idea and all that. So I guess it's a challenge. But for me, because I I think of space and I'm fascinated by how we feel space and experience it, when when even i started i had the vision of how these even with the pinky rings you know you have the grid and how you access it and i wanted to build almost this chaos kind of space that you go into and um how you try the pieces how you experience you feel that you you know it's like and you're out it's like (laughs) so um so i still want to build this installation that i feel that it can sit in this you know it sits in London for six months and then moves somewhere and where you go view some of the pieces try them experience it and other things so we'll see if I get to make it but yeah I think every project though varies it's not that I just want to change the whole retail experience in general I think it depends what you're doing you know or what the project well, is. I think
0: there's a good thing that the retail experience probably is changing it is well, heavily, yeah, isn't it? and nobody knows yeah. quite what it's going to be yeah, it's important for people to have something to connect them. People mm. like stories, don't they? And that your installation will connect them to whatever they wear from you and give them a story.
2: Why would it be? Why would it be um, temporary? Why would it move? Mm-hmm.
1: There can be something permanent, but the idea is, so I was very interested in the idea of a trolley when you pick dessert or a vending machine and you move it from space to space based on needs, right? So, and why can't luxury be part of that, you know? So, and for me, the chaos or this cube or whatever it ends up being is is something that you feel or I feel that there is this piece or this experience that's going to exist now here and then it moves to some and another experience fits in its place or a space
2: yeah. we, we were on a remote country platform in japan waiting for the local train last month and and there was this white vending machine with the objects in it it was quite big but it looked like something from you know those science fiction films of going to the, of another planet you know it was all white and glowing mm-hmm. and the objects look very special Made me want to buy a meal, and I don't normally do it, because I didn't have.
1: And what were the objects?
2: I don't Just a thing of, um, you know, sorry, milk or something. Yes. Or Coca Cola.
1: I like also the grid and the matrix, like you kind of pick. You know how when you go with the numbers to pick something, yeah. and it's sort of there's something personal about that. But even though you're isolated from it. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll look forward. I hope you get it built. Yes. We will Thank you. tell everybody on if jewels could talk. And <laughs> John is
1: going to maybe
0: use gold. Gold would be your preferred metal to make a piece of jewelry.
2: Whatever looks good on the body, person body. Uh-huh. Well,
0: gold looks good.
2: Yes, no, gold is hard to beat. Okay. There's our challenge. If Jules can talk, going
0: to get hold of some gold. And we will be the first people to show you a John Porson piece of jewellery. I look forward yeah. to seeing it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but Thank, you so, much, thank, you. You, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me and for that fascinating conversation. Thank you, Dina. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was lovely. John.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwiltoncom podcasts. Do share it any way you can, and we love a comment and a rating. For more information on our sponsors, it's fullygemstones.com. And we are up for an award at the British Podcasts Awards, and there's a link on the website. We would love your support and a vote. Thank you. Now, join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when I'll be talking about spirit animals with a shaman and with a jewellery designer. And I'm going to find out what my spirit animal is. Do you know what yours is? Join us then. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labander, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton.